This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Thursday evening edition of the Full Ride on the Chase Thomas Podcast. It's Thursday, so you know that means that guy down there in Tequila, Georgia, is here. Fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green. Matt, good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, sir. How are you doing this lovely Thursday evening? It is quite cold, man. It was 65 degrees, had one of my best runs through knoxville yesterday today hashtag run knoxville hey you you keep up with it (laughs) (laughs) i'm a follower it's how i like i don't know if you're like this but i need to like see things and it like for me it would bother me so much if i went a day without it like it, it would just feel out of place i would be mad at myself for not doing it does that make sense where if i see it Every day, it's like, oh, right, I haven't gotten my run Knoxville in yet, so I got to go ahead and knock that out. It's just, it's on my daily to-do list, but to you see some it, accountability? Yeah, it's an accountability thing, 100%. I hear you. I respect that. Yeah. I should do more things like that. <laughs> it helps, man. The accountability stuff really does um, really does help. But, uh, yeah, it was it was like 30 degrees today. It dropped 30 degrees, and now it's like 20-something, and I'm, I'm very upset. Yeah, it's uh, winter is not over. No, no, COVID's not over, winter's not over, nothing is uh, over on that front. Uh, what is the weather like in Georgia, the home state? How are you holding it down for me while I'm gone? Oh yeah, man, holding it down is same. It's probably it's probably pretty similar. It was, <laughs> it was cold. I thought it was it was like warming up, but yeah, it's fucking cold. Still, uh, still January. Well, give us a Zeus update. Uh, our weekly Zeus story. Do you have any Zeus stories from the last time we talked? Um, you know, we, uh, we gave him a, a bath, uh, you know, mm-hmm. yesterday. So, so that was good. You know, we, uh, got him out in the, in the driveway. So, uh, driveway bath. Is he too big for the bathtub? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> just, there's no, yeah, there's no reason to do that. That would just be more trouble that's worth. And then hair would probably just be everywhere. So yeah, that's like, that's not even a chance. We've, we've gone to those like Rucker pet things before. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a, I think it's like a different name now i think they got like bought out but um they had those little showers kind of okay it's almost like it's more like a a kitchen like dishwasher kind of set up i know what you're talking about yeah the dog never been but i I know of people that have used those yes it's legit for sure there was one downtown because i think my ex-roommate took his husky over there a couple times i because it was too big in our bathroom to bathe them i i I seem to recall what you're talking about but i don't remember the name yeah, but you yeah, can actually go in sponsor, there and do it yourself. So it's like a full-on shower, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, well, that's good. Is he? So he's smelling good. Zeus is feeling good. He's got a new knee. 
He smells good. Good for him. <laughs> he did not get a new knee. He's he's fine. He just had to take some time off of it. Uh, he's back to walking though. That was that was killing him because he's got all that energy. He needs to just pent up. But we're like, you know, trying to tell you, man, this is for your, this is for your own good. You gotta you gotta take it easy. But he's he's a gamer, you know, and competitors they want to compete. So you know you gotta save them from themselves sometimes. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, don't forget, folks, you can listen to the Chase Thomas podcast, specifically the full ride, uh, once a week during the off season on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Go check out com today for all the access on my articles. Every episode is available on the site. Go check out bluewirepods.com where you can get access to all the Blue Wire Sports Network shows like mine, like Hardwood Knox, the greatest NBA show that you can listen to, um, the Freddie Adu story, American Prodigy by Grant Wall. Go check that out. Um, a lot of great stuff coming down the Blue Wire pipeline, so go do that. But uh, also just a five-star rating and review. Like it. it Subscribe. It helps. We promise. Um, hey, I'll be honest yes. with you. I feel like I'm, I'm finally – it's finally basketball season to mm-hmm. me. Like I'm full, I'm full blown in basketball season. Like now, NBA or college? You know? NBA. Honestly, okay. man, I probably couldn't name five college basketball players right now. I feel like the the turnover is just so quick. I don't follow recruiting like I do uh, college football. It's like I feel like I don't even know who I'm watching. But um, well, college is more college basketball is more regional than college football. Like I think college football, we just know of everybody because everybody's on and it's appointment television. College basketball is not appointment television, so I know everything about Tennessee basketball. But <laughs> like I'm, I'm not even going to pretend to have like a very firm understanding of what's going on at UCLA with Mick Cronin this year. Like I'm watching stuff and I'm reading stuff and I'm keeping up with Kim Palm, but like. Do I? Yeah. Do I know? I know, that, know? Dude, I knew that dude Garza that yes. plays for Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Who's going number twenty-seven in the draft? But it's going full Tyler Hansborough and probably going to win the offen- like the Player of the Year for college basketball. Like it's. I think Iowa has the best offense in college basketball this year. But I know you're not a big fantasy basketball mm-hmm. guy. No. That keep that just keeps you involved. You know, it just keeps you interested in all the right. all the games right. going on. So I uh, I enjoy it. I'm I'm locked in NBA TV. Oh, I mean, I watch an NBA game every day, so you 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 know that I'm very much locked in. And the Hawks are very topsy turvy, and they've been very frustrating this year. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I I, uh, I have a great fantasy basketball team name though, and okay, I got to give it? Tori credit. She came up with it. We actually we had a brain we had a brainstorming session. Mm. I'm like, look, this is my roster. Keep it. Yeah, come up with a pun here. It's a uh, living Lavina Loca. <laughs> That's the that's his fancy team name. Zach Levine is obviously on my team, but uh, it's good stuff. And he's also like my breakout player too, so it worked out perfectly. But I know, I know, no one else likes to talk about my fantasy basketball oh team, so we can uh, we can keep it moving. Talk some college football. I love it. All right, there you go, folks. Living a Vienna loca. Um, it's Ricky <laughs> Martin, right? Am I misremembering that? Oh yeah, man. Okay. Um, lot of news to get through today. Mac you game. act like you weren't Ricky Martin's like number one fan. Come on what now, the, man. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. There's the Latin explosion, man. Everyone was feeling Ricky Martin. Wait, is that, was that his nickname? No, no. It was like that era. It was like 99, 2000. There was like, that's what they called it. It's like a bunch of Latin You're American. You're 100% artists. making all of this up. I'm being 100%. It's like Enrique Iglesias and like Jennifer Lopez. Get it's Tori like, in here. Let's it's see like if she can era, confirm. I'm telling you. It's a real thing. I'm going to call my girlfriend. We'll see. We'll, we'll clear this up real quick. 
I'm going to ask her after we get done here because she is uh, <laughs> of the Hispanic hey, persuasion. You know, I feel for you that you weren't just you weren't a part of the culture oh. of, of 99, 2000 era of that Latin explosion. It was a it was a great time. It's a great time for MTV. Matt, I was asking my parents why I couldn't get cornrows like Allen Iverson in 1999. Like there was no. <laughs> There was no Latin explosion for me. I was memorizing depth charts and memorizing why Kansas State football was really good. That was uh that was my focus. That was that was a golden era of Kansas State football. That's yeah. true. I could tell you Michael, all about early two thousands, late nineties Kansas Michael State. Bishop. Yeah, no, Bob Snyder. I could tell you all about those L. Roberson, Michael Bishop teams, Darren Sproles, all that. I can I can do it. That was your squad, huh? I mean, I just have this weird remember. Like, I watched a lot of Kansas State, and I just remember their rankings. It's very strange what sticks with you when you get older, but I just I have a very distinct memory of Kansas State during that time period. Hey, no doubt, man. That, that, that's what happens, you know? It's... it's like I remember a lot of Rohan Davey. Like, that's a weird thing that I just have etched in my mind. I, I remember watching a lot of Rohan Davey. It's just weird. A lot of Jefferson Pilot sports in my life. Like, I could just tell you a lot about some horrible pictures and horrible games i watched on that channel that is true those like 2001 to like 2005 i'm like i'm like a sports encyclopedia Mm -hmm. i'm remembering everything from that era it's like you're like 11 to 15 years old you have zero responsibilities in the world it's like that was (laughs) that was the golden era you know you have nothing else going on. There's then you start driving, you know, start trying to talk to girls. You got to get a job. You know, it's just all all that stuff gets in the way. But eleven to thirteen, you're like, nope. I'll mom more Cheetos. Back to NCAA two thousand eight. Like that. Yeah, it's just it's not a. It wasn't a thing. We simpler times, Matt Green. Simpler times. Um, yes. speaking of simpler times. The Tennessee Volunteers. Yeah, that, uh, t- yeah, perfect segue. 2000 college football. Yeah. <laughs> We're back, baby. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Rocky Top is back. Uh, Tennessee <laughs> is just all the way back, Matt Green. Uh, they hired Josh Heupel. They hired Danny White, I think, after we were done recording, too. They moved quickly. Danny White, obviously, coming from University of Central Florida. His father uh, is now going to retire as AD at Duke Cutcliffe recommended, I believe, uh, his uh, uh, Mr. White's son to the University of Tennessee. Peyton Manning had a relationship with Danny White and the White family. Obviously, going and Archie, I think, is close friends with Danny White Sr., who I think was the AD at Ole Miss. That's what college football is in a nutshell. Just all these kind of relationships, and they all matter. Um, and it's very hard to keep up with from just person to person but um yeah he will be replacing philip fulmer and josh heupel after an exhaustive search where the university of tennessee hired a search firm to let me check my notes here hire the coach from where the ad came from so money well spent there uh speaking of money well spent uh kevin Steele is uh getting not getting retained on this staff and will make $900,000 to do absolutely nothing over a month span. So shout out to him. Get that bag, sir. Um, good, good gig. If you can get it, man. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, Josh Heupel, the, the press conference, he's not a, not the most, um, energetic, charismatic human being I've ever listened to. I'm not like jumping out the door. I'm not, uh, I'm not super enthralled by a Josh Heupel press conference. He didn't. He didn't win the press conference. No, Danny White wins press conferences. That guy is just optimism, optimism, optimism. That dude is just like he wakes up at five o'clock in the morning, lifting two fifty. That is my Danny White Im- impression. But J- 
Josh Heupel um, does not give me that impression, but Josh Heupel is an offensive genius. He's worked with Drew Locke at Mizzou. He started out, obviously, as a Heisman finalist and winning a national title at, at uh, Oklahoma with Bob Stoops. Work with Bob Stoops. Um, after that, he uh, obviously took over Scott Frost at UCF. Um, he is a great offensive mind. At the very least, the thing that I take away from this Tennessee hire, and I also think Tennessee shot for the stars, which Danny White deserves credit for making calls to James Franklin, making calls to P.J. Fleck, but Tennessee is in a weird spot. Like We still don't know entirely what the ramifications are going to be from the investigation on the compliance situation. So this was a tough job for people to take. Tennessee's a hard job. The fan base is rabid. It's huge. They revolted over the last coaching search. So I'm sure a lot of Big Ten coaches were like, yeah, I don't know if I want to get dip my toes into that. Um, so I think Tennessee fans are probably shooting a little too high. Would I have liked to have seen a Jamie Chadwell more than a Josh Eipel? Yes. Would I prefer Billy Napier over Josh Eipel? I don't know. They're about the same to me. It's just, I'm glad they took big swings and I'm not surprised they were rebuffed because Tennessee is in a tough spot right now. But do I think Josh Heupel is a much better coach than Jeremy Pruitt? Yes. Do I think he's better than Derek Dooley? Yes. Do I think he has the opportunity to be better than Butch Jones? Yes. So if you're just judging it on that alone, you have to be excited about Tennessee football in the sense that like, oh my goodness, at least the offense is going to be fun again. Because like we talked about this fall, those games, man, where they're just getting outscored 118 to 8 in the second half, and just what we saw offensively with Jim Chaney in this group this past year, like you just can't do that in the SEC anymore. The SEC is the new Big 12, and you've got to have offense. You've got to put up points. You've got to be exciting. You've got to get butts in seats. And Josh Heupel, at the very least, is going to get butts in seats because Tennessee, they may not be able to stop anybody defensively because Henry Toto and everybody's gone, but they are going to score points, and they are going to score a lot of them. Well, that's the one thing that you they got to give to the Tennessee fan base is the butts are in the seats regardless. Like they, I gotta, you gotta respect the loyalty of the Tennessee fan base. But I think uh, one of the best points you made is just, there's still so much uncertainty around this investigation going on with Tennessee. So I feel like, I feel like, you know, what I've heard, you know, on Twitter and, you know, however reliable that is as a source on message boards and things like that that Tennessee fans don't seem to be thrilled with this hire, but I feel like it seems like kind of a home run given the circumstances of, you know, just having a job like this get on to like the, the market, so to speak, so late and just with the investigation going on, like obviously it, it feels lazy. I, also, I want to shout out myself. I feel like I threw out Josh Heupel's name. Did you just say like, I want to shout out myself? Is that I an express? Okay. I was just going to say I'm going to give myself some credit. I think I threw out his name last week when we talked about uh, Danny White getting the job. I, I think I threw out Scott Frost and Josh Heupel, but obviously I didn't know what they were going to do. But people are talking like it's a lazy hire, like like you like you just alluded to like oh he just hired the guy that he's been working with the last three years but as far as what's going on at Tennessee it it feels like a guy who's going to bring stability to Tennessee I think that's true and I think he's good here for a while he seems like someone that is not looking for the next job after this one I think he would have stayed at UCF for a while I think people who are nervous about him recruiting the SEC 
I'm not as nervous about that. And Heupel strikes me as a coach kind of in the Dan Mullen. Like, like he's like likable Dan Mullen to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, Dan Mullen was, was never really disliked until like the last couple years. It's only like since he got well, to like, Florida. Well, like I'm saying like I he's guess. always had that like alpha, like I like remember the video of him just running. Like that dude's just a work workaholic. He's just intense. He's... He's confident. You want to thumb wrestle? You want to thumb wrestle? I'll <laughs> kick your ass. <laughs> like Josh Heupel doesn't strike me as a guy who has any of those personality traits, but I think they're aligned in that they're both just offensive savants. And I think Tennessee, at the very least, even if Heupel doesn't recruit, I mean, I I don't know if I I can't put Josh Heupel on Dan Mullen's level just because. Have you seen I his mean, offenses in the last? He did three get years. fired from when he was at Oklahoma, though. Like, so it's like that was kind of. Did you see that his was, numbers at Mizzou with Drew Locke? Did you see his numbers at UCF? Like, this dude... That's true. Drew Locke was, like, an elite quarterback. He wasn't until Josh Heupel, bro. Josh I mean, Heupel turned him but around. Drew Locke's got the tools, though. He's got, like, the the cannon, you know? Like, you can't coach that kind of that kind of ability. Like, I'm not mm. saying, like, not giving him any... Not giving him credit for uh, them having a good offense. Because they definitely did have a good offense uh, while he was there. But I'm just saying, like, Dan Mullen... Those Florida, like, you probably give more credit to Urban Meyer maybe for those offenses, but those Florida offenses were some of the greatest offenses, like, we've ever seen. And then what he did at Mississippi State and what he's continued to do at Florida with with kind of not elite talent, I feel like he just has a much longer track record of proving to be, like, an offensive, like, mastermind. I can't, I can't put Heupel on... Well, like the Oklahoma stuff is nonsense because it was like, weren't they running? Who were they running at quarterback? Was that the Trevor Knight year? They were doing stuff with Trevor Knight at that point. For a few years, 2011 to 2014. Who is that? Who's that era? Is that like Landry Jones or something around that time? It was not the talent they have now at quarterback. Yeah. (laughs) It was near the end of the Bob Stoops where it's like they were not recruiting at that kind of level like Lincoln Riley's doing right now. Um I don't know. I just I think he he runs a very Art Brylesy type offense. I think he is going like what he did with Dylan Gabriel the last couple of years, uh, what he did with McKenzie Milton before he had that awful injury. Like that dude is going to put on a show. Like even if you're not all the way in on Josh Heupel as an offensive mind, I I just don't see a scenario where Tennessee is not one of the best offenses in the SEC next year. I just don't. I think there's just still too much talent there. A lot like even with the departures. He is going to maximize what he has. He's one with less with Mizzou, with less talent in Mizzou, less talent at UCF. I have questions about the defense. I don't know what kind of recruiter he's going to be in this conference. I don't know what his recruiting staff is going to be. I don't know what the recruiting budget's going to be. But I do know it will be watchable, which, hey, that's all I won 2021. A watchable no, Tennessee that, offense. All that's fair for sure. I'm not taking away from anything away from Hypo. I'm just I'm maybe just I'm giving more credit to Dan Mullen. I don't think he's he's just not on that level yet. He could be. I think it and the 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 first time I heard of uh I heard the uh sorry, I'm getting tangled up here. The first time I heard the news of this hire, I my first thought was that it, it just seemed like a solid hire. Like maybe not the sexiest, but it's like it seems solid. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Um but yeah, we'll we'll have to see what happens. But um, I'm very interested to see what the defensive staff looks like. And if Randy Shannon is not joining him, that's good. And I want to see where he goes because I I assume that Kevin Steele had a good shot at uh, staying on um, as DC, and I would have liked that. Um, but that is not the case. 
Now your section of the podcast that uh, I know you've been chomping at the bit to get to. Crazy news out of Raven County today. Um, first time anybody's ever said that. Gunner Stockton is uh, he's going to UGA, the 6'1", 200-plus pound warrior from Raven County and arch rival of Brock Vandegrift. Uh, both. And I don't know what you know about Raven County. That's a that's a beautiful area up there, right? No, right up there, it's right not up there in the mountains. Not that it, not that part of. Okay, so let me. I'm going to peel the curtain back for the listeners a little bit. Kind of right in the the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. Well, right? hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Raven County is different than the Smoky Mountains. Raven County is okay. So I have to be very careful with how I word this and not to offend my lovely, lovely, lovely Raven County and Smoky Mountain listeners. I was in Boy Scouts growing up, Matt Green. Where are we going with this? Hated Boy Scouts. Like, I hated it. I, I absolutely despised it. And I am an Eagle Scout. Um, Raven County is where Camp Rainy Mountain is, like the summer camp for Boy Scouts that I had to go to for several years in a row for a week. And when I say I've never hated a place more on planet Earth, <laughs> it's this place in Raven County. If I saw it again, I'd probably have like an aneurysm. Like I, I hate it so much. It was awful. There is it. The food was terrible. There, the the situation was terrible. The bathroom situation was terrible. Hated all of it. <laughs> Didn't shower for like a week. It was awful. Fair enough. Fair enough. I can't speak to that. So Raven County is just like I just get uh, PTSD when I think about it. We uh, we won't have to, we won't bring it up again. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll stay away from it. Um, but yeah, so Gunnar Stockton commits to Georgia. He was originally committed to South Carolina, but South Carolina lost Bobo and Muschamp, so he decommitted, and it looked like he was going to follow Bobo to Auburn, but Kirby, going full Kirby, he pulls him in. Um, what does this mean for University of Georgia? Curbs, man. Just always recruiting. Um, I think what I what it says to me is it speaks to Kirby's self-confidence right now. Like, I feel like there's a lot of like chatter about Georgia, kind of where they are as a program, but it, it feels like it's all outside noise and none of it's getting into Georgia. You know what I mean? Like just with the whole fields and from thing, it was just hanging over him for years and just the 1980, all that stuff. It just shows like, it's, you, you know, you were right when you heard this news, like how long just cue the tweets for, Oh, Jake from Justin Fields, Kirby got it wrong last time. You know, it's like, it was just so obvious how that narrative was going to, to be played out after you heard this news. But I think it just shows Kirby's philosophy is just get the best players at every single position that you can. And just let the guys, let the guys sort it out themselves, you know, iron sharpens iron as they always like to say. So I think uh, I think it's interesting. I think it says a lot about Gunnar Stockton's mentality. You know, of the fact that a guy as big time as Brock Vandegriff is committed already, just one year ahead of him. But I think what makes it different, obviously, I guess Jake Fromm didn't know he was going to be the starting quarterback as a as a true freshman. But assuming nothing happens to J.C. Daniels, doesn't get injured or anything, he's not going to be battling a returning starter like Justin Fields was. So there neither one will have a leg up on the other, you Correct. know. So most likely it'll neither will be a, the start or uh Vandergriff is just the backup all of this year and then you know they just come in 2022 and it's just an, an open competition. So I mean, you would imagine that with just one year separation like they're not going to both end their careers at Georgia. 
So are we counting out Stetson Bennett now? <laughs> I mean, who knows, man? With with what happened at, at Georgia last year, like they were on what their fourth option, and they got to Stetson Bennett. But uh, I think he's still got like two years left. Like I think he could uh, he could be there as long as uh, as Hunter Renfro. Well, I think he's got a little bit of Baker Mayfield in him, so I'd keep him around. Um, I I was stunned. I I don't. <sighs> I got to be careful here. This is like, like you said, Kirby, and this goes back to his philosophy. Saban has this philosophy. Like you can never have too many five stars and he's going to put together a crazy class because they per 24, seven sports are going to finish with a number one class for a third time over what will be a six year span in 2022. That's where they're at right now. That's insane. That's enough to win a national title. So when you recruit like this, you better win. And, well, they're not. They're not number one right now. Well, no, I mean, they, they, they have the be. position, like based on where they're going, and if they keep Stockton and they keep and Stockton's apparently a good recruiter too, so he's gonna pull some people in his class by getting Stockton locked in. That's really gonna help that 2022 class. So they are forecasting them to be in that number one spot. I know you're getting antsy because you're like, I don't want to buy in all the way, but uh, it looks like Georgia's gonna be in the top three at the very least. So. It's I'm just good. saying they, there's a there's a long way to go just because they they have seven commits right now. Like Tennessee fans, I know you guys want to want to count their recruiting rankings. No, we're not talking about that. Yeah, right ten now. months no, we're not out. About sorry, that was a low blow. That was no low recruiting, blow. no transfer stuff. I, no, I, I'm not even here for any of that right now. I'm still, I'm oh, the sadness <laughs> of uh, Henry Toto. I'm not I'm not there yet. Um, what I think is most interesting about this 2022 class Georgia starting to uh, put together is every commit they have so far is from the state of Georgia. So hmm. I think there was kind of some rumblings of, you know, Georgia kind of going more national in recent years. But if you look right now on the 24 seven composite rankings, there's one player committed in the top 14 that's committed anywhere other than Georgia. And that's unfortunately for Georgia, it's Travis Hunter, who's like the fourth ranked player in the country from Collins Hill dudes, a straight, baller honestly but um he's committed to florida state but every other guy i mean georgia's got right now five of the top 13 players committed in the state of georgia and no one else is committed anywhere else so georgia's really uh locking down the state so far yeah and it uh it's not slowing down kirby is recruiting his ass off and it turns out when you have five million dollars in your recruiting budget that good things can happen for you um yeah, so we'll we'll see, but I'm fascinated to see how it all unfolds. I agree with you; it's not like the Fields from situation, and both will not be on the roster. But I'm also worried for guys like this because it can go south really quickly. Look at Tate Martell, who we'll get into in a second. Like when you lose this and you go to a place where there's going to be a quarterback room of just talent everywhere, and you lose out, and you're the odd man out. There's no guarantees that you just transfer and then you find the right place. Like. You but get, Tate Martell is obviously just not good, right? Yeah, but he was still a five-star, and he, like, we don't know. Like, what if Tate Martell had just gone to, like, Penn State from the get-go? Like, he might have just been awesome. He could have been Trace McSorley. You have no... But I would feel like if this guy was good at all, he would have he would have played at some point. I like, guess. He, yeah. I, like, he still was a former five-star, but, like, like, we've never actually seen him do it. You know what I mean? So, I don't I don't know. It's, it's It just, it makes me I mean, me Tracy Daniels was heading that way. And then he blossomed at UGA now, and now you have a just a future first round pick in JT, and he's he's going to he, be a monster. He at least he at least had a one full season of as a starting quarterback. And he wasn't very good though. No, he didn't have a great freshman year. But I'm saying like Tate Martell didn't even get the reps. You know, yeah. he didn't even get on the field. And granted, it's not like 
Ohio State had some scrub playing in front of them. I mean, obviously, well, it was probably Haskins. I believe it was Haskins at that point, yeah. But um, but yeah. So I don't, I don't know. It's it's just funny to me every time I see Tate Martell in the headlines. I'm like, oh, we're still talking about this guy. We we still want him to be good, I guess. Yeah, once you have that five star label behind you, people will still talk themselves into you. The Garrett Gilberts of the world. Um, <laughs> the who's it? Who's it? Blake Barnett. The Blake Barnett. Yeah, didn't he end up at like USF? I want to say like four different schools. Arizona yeah. State at some point. Yeah. The SEC schedules were released this week as well. Um, I tweeted about seeing that Clemson and Georgia were playing on a neutral site to begin this year and just being annoyed at that development. Um, it's just, I, I hate it. I really do. Can you imagine how much, like, like it was so fun for so many UGA fans to make the, the pilgrimage to Notre Dame and go see Notre Dame, go watch that game in per, like in person at Notre Dame with their team. Like people want to have those bucket list games, like Tennessee fans going to Oklahoma to see Oklahoma, Tennessee that should have happened this year. You want to you want to have those sites where like you can go and play like at USC one year, play at UCLA or something like that early in the year. Go to Oregon. Um these neutral site games, the the Chick-fil-A kickoff games, the Dallas Jerry Bowl games, like this stuff's got to stop. And I understand there's more money in it, but it's awful. It goes against the sport. Like I understand in bowl season, I understand the playoff. I understand all that, but man, you got to get rid of this stuff when it comes to in game, because there's nothing better in the atmosphere of a big top 25 game at an opposing stadium where the crowd's just losing their mind, 90 plus thousand. And you're feeling the heat. Like it's just not the same in a 50, 50 split neutral site. It's just not, it's a lot more hollow. I want you to know, give, give me a standing ovation right now. I just want you to know that. I feel like I've been saying this for so long, the exact same thing. It's It just makes no sense because the best part of college football is, like you said, the home atmosphere. So luckily, like the ones like Georgia Clemson, like we're going to see that home and home here a couple times in the next few years. But, you know, a cool game like Alabama-Miami, you know, just just uh Texas A&M going to Colorado like a Texas A&M fan and Texas A&M fans are trying to spend their money like those people are just they're traveling everywhere they go and going to Colorado playing in Boulder that would just be an awesome experience and now you're playing in the Denver Broncos stadium it's like this is this is so random I just and on top of everything it's like college football on top of just everything we've said college football has just become so expensive for fans and season ticket holders and everything. And so you're going to pay all this for season tickets and then the best non-conference game and these, these matchups that we never see, you know, it's one thing if Tennessee and Georgia wanted to play in Nashville, play in the Titan stadium, it's like they play each other all the time. Like, yeah, change it up. That's, that's fine. But Alabama never has a chance to go to Miami other than the college football playoff. But Miami doesn't ever play at Alabama. Like that's a cool matchup we never see, and you're just gonna play that at, a, at an NFL stadium. It it just doesn't make any sense. And but yeah, like the the fans paying these prices for season tickets, and then they don't even get those as one of their one of their home games. I feel like it's kind of I don't know. It just doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't seem like it's in the spirit of college football. Yeah, and. I, I think it's like we're yelling at the cloud because I don't uh, <laughs> I don't think this is a development that's going the opposite way. I think the cat's out of the bag and they're just going to do more and more of these. 
I will say, in like the next decade, it looks like there might be more teams going back to the home and home. Okay, I know Georgia. Yeah. I know Georgia has a bunch. Like I hope. I hope for. I hope Kirby Smart and Greg McGarry know what they're doing because Georgia's setting up a gauntlet. Because y'all um, added Oregon, didn't you? I think they have Oregon one year. I think that might be a neutral site. I think that's a Chick Fil A kickoff uh. game. But um, there's Ohio State. There's a home and home. There's home and home with Texas. Home and home with UCLA. Home and home with Oklahoma, Florida State. Like there's a there's a bunch that Georgia's doing here from like twenty twenty to twenty thirty. But uh so obviously those teams are playing Georgia too. And I think Alabama and like Texas, I think there's there there's some good ones. LSU Clemson, I think, the next few years. So I'm hoping they uh they're catching on that it's it's better, especially for these teams. Like I think Kirby Smart or, or Greg McGarity, one of the two, said that like the, the, the best moment of, of their Georgia career so far was the Notre Dame home Yes. And it's like because it created that ridiculous atmosphere that you had in Athens, Georgia, yes. in in your local economy and everything. You know, it, like not it in fucking Indianapolis eyes, at the Colts yeah, Stadium. Yeah, exactly. Put those eyes on Sanford Stadium, not Mercedes Benz. Like I still see videos pop up of the stadium before kickoff. Like I still like people, those fans will never forget being there for that night. Like it's just, God, it's just an easy thing. Just don't do it. Like whenever you're thinking like, is the extra money worth it? We promise on the full ride. It's yeah. So far, so far this year, there's, there's three that opening weekend, you Georgia Clemson and Charlotte, Alabama, Miami and Atlanta and Ole Miss and Louisville. Also, I think it's like that Monday night game. Um, and then Texas A&M, Colorado, and Denver. But there's a there's a couple other interesting ones. Like Texas goes at Arkansas this year. Um, Auburn plays at Penn State. And then um, the, the other two that stood out to me as far as the SEC schedules goes is uh, Bama, Florida this year. I, I've, I have really no idea what to expect uh, from Florida just from losing so oh, much. Oh, they're going to lose that game, Matt Green. Oh, I mean, uh, for sure. I would assume they will, but... Uh, you know, Emory Jones, like Dan Mullen, oh. is truly the whisperer. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this guy knows something I don't. You know what I mean? That's uh, my brother. Actually, I got to give him credit for this. He was like, "Is there a chance Emory Jones gets his DJ Shockley on?" Uh, and I'm like, "Dude, uh, no way. That's that's ridiculous." And then we I, we pulled up DJ Shockley's numbers. His like first three years at Georgia, and you're like. There's literally nothing to suggest that this dude's going to break out and win SEC Player of the Year and George's going to win the conference. So I was like, ah, that's, a, that's a fair comparison. I'll give you that. But I don't, I definitely don't see that happening. But it was, it was obviously a surprise when Shockley did it too back then. But uh, and then the other the game that stood out to me was uh, Lane Kiffin, the Lane Train, coming to Knoxville this year, October 16th. I can't wait. I, Are you going to be I there? Oh, absolutely. I cannot wait for that. I, I it's just the trolling the week leading into it it's just going to be incredible it's it's going to be a great thing and it's going to be like 56 49 too which is going to be also pretty awesome um next up tennessee eric gray following wanya morris to oklahoma he'll be the lead back at oklahoma this year sad to see him go but uh based on uh, some behind the scenes stuff not at all surprised that he did not return to knoxville um happy for him he was one of the lone bright spots for tennessee this fall wish him nothing but the best keontae ingram former texas running back moving on to usc um yeah i think both these guys are probably gonna play pivotal roles for uh for their new team right 
Yeah, Eric Gray to Oklahoma. That that's a move that uh, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like you could see a huge breakout from from him this year. Yeah, playing behind Oklahoma and working with Lincoln Riley's offense is going to be good. And I know uh, that one's going to sting for you. Yeah, well, not really. I just he's one of those. I that was your the boy, best. right? Say it again. That was your boy, right? Oh, I love Eric Gray. Eric Gray is fantastic. He's going to do the get ready for primetime college football of Eric Gray doing the guitar. The uh, playing the guitar. That was his favorite thing after a big play. Um, <laughs> that's, that's his move? That's his move. He loves doing playing. the dice thing too much. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of quarterbacks entered the portal this week. Um, the McCaffreys, Dylan and Luke McCaffrey. Luke from Nebraska losing the job to Adrian Martinez. And Dylan McCaffrey, who lost the job to Joe Milton, who also lost the job to, I don't remember, who, who was the, the third quarterback they had this year? Because McCaffrey opted out of the season at Michigan. I don't even remember who they finished with now. I'm blanking on his name, and I should oh, be blanking on oh, it. Who was the other quarterback they I'm had? I'm blanking on him. He's a four-star. Why am I blanking on this dude's name? Not Dylan Morris. What is his name? Uh, what is his name? I, uh, while you're looking that up. Well, Tate, well, let's find that. Tate Martell transferring out of Miami. With Derek King returning as a nine-year senior at the University of Miami, um, Kale Millen, backup at Oregon, will not be returning. Former four-star, he's entered the portal, and Alan Bowman, the great Texas Tech quarterback who's just injured all the time, still a lot of talent there. He has also entered the portal. What do you make of these guys, and who are you the most fascinated by uh, popping up in a new home? Well, you know, Dylan McCaffrey's the one. By the way, Cade McNamara. Cade McNamara, that's the it. name we were unable to with six, complete sixty percent of his passes, five touchdowns. Yeah, he was all right. Pick. Um, you know, Dylan McCaffrey. I feel like we still haven't seen much from him, so you know, it's hard. It's hard to really judge. You know, any of these guys with such a small sample size. I mean, I don't think Kale Millen's ever even thrown a pass, but. Uh, He's got that prototype size, so I, I really I wonder where he's going to end up. I I feel like he seems like the one that's got the most upside to me. Yeah, for me, it's probably Alan Bowman because I think he could actually swing some races depending on like I hope he ends up on like I was thinking about where he could go because my first thought was oh Mississippi State with Mike Leach and then you're like oh no Will Rogers played really well for them and he's the guy at Mississippi State and I'm thinking about where else could he go because he would actually be a really interesting wrinkle. Um, in the SEC where all offenses are the Big 12. Like, put him in Florida. Let Dan Mullen work with him because he can play right away. Like, put him in uh, South Carolina. Put him in Tennessee. Already got Hooker, so there's no chance there. I'm trying to think of, like, any other SEC team that makes sense. Maybe A&M would be funny. Um, does anyone else strike you? Philip Felipe Franks is gone from Arkansas. That wouldn't be crazy. Uh, you know what? Kentucky needs a quarterback, and guess what? Kentucky brought in Liam Cohen, NFL guy, running a pro-style scheme that uh, might be appetizing for Mr. Allen Bowen, but he was really good for Texas Tech when he played, and I'm interested to see where he goes, and I hope it's an SEC school because I want to watch him more this fall. Yeah, Kentucky, that's a, that's a, nice, little, that's a nice drop right there. I like that. Um, Brian Johnson, speaking of Florida. He is their number one recruiter at Florida. Uh, came with Dan Mullen from Mississippi State. He is taking the quarterback coaching job with uh, Satterini, uh, the new head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. So this is a huge under-the-radar 
situation for for uh Dan Mullen down there in Gainesville because he is in he's great with quarterbacks. He did a lot for Dak Prescott. He is a quarterback whisperer, did a lot for Kyle Trask. Dan Mullen losing Brian Johnson, I think, is an under the radar brutal, brutal blow for uh for the Florida Gators. Yeah, that's um I I wonder how much this could uh this could impact uh, their quarterback position with how I mean he's been there with with Mullen every step of the way and and like you said Florida for whatever reason just isn't recruiting at the level of those other kind of powerhouses and if you're going to lose one of your guys that's the best recruiter on the offensive side that's that could be a big loss for sure uh, Mike Stoops with some drama he was going to Texas and then Steve Sarkeesian was like no we're, we're good actually we're rescinding the offer so he ends up at FAU to replace Jim Levitt who is going to join Sonny Dykes who was also uh, rumored to be on the short list at Tennessee um, at SMU so uh, a lot of musical chairs on that front speaking of I don't have this on our list but Georgia also getting some new defensive help in the form of the West Virginia defensive backs coach moving over to Athens. What do you, what do you make of all of that? Yeah, I think that's a big time hire. I, um, I'm blanking on his name right now. I die his last name. What's his first name? I don't remember. Off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm totally blanking on it right now, but, um, yeah, I mean, West Virginia had the number one passing defense in the country last year and also had, a uh, one of their corners, uh, was also a semifinalist for the Thorpe award. So, Georgia is losing, I think, like six of their top seven players in the defensive backfield this year. So uh, let's hope that there's a coach that can come in and uh, coach them up right away. Alabama, because they're Alabama, just hire two literal NFL head coaches in the last year as their OC and offensive line coach to replace Kyle Flood and Steve Sarkeesian, Doug Marone coaching the offensive line, and... Bill O'Brien coaching the offense. Just the rich get richer. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, and Jamil Adai. Jamil Adai, okay. The coach I was uh, blanking on. But, um, yeah, it's it's going to be expected from Alabama now at this point. Yeah, and there was one more. Durante Jones named defensive coordinator at LSU. LSU has had a lot of trouble finding Bo Pelini's replacement, been turned down by several big names, but they are big game hunting. They got the the offensive minds from Joe Brady staff in Carolina, but uh, Ed Orgeron, man, he is, he's feeling the heat and uh, he better hope Durante Jones is a better defensive coordinator with their scheme and their player and personnel than uh, Bo Pelini was this year. This is, this could be it for Ed Orgeron. Yeah, I think it's definitely uh the the luster has, has has already worn off from that national championship season. If 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 they don't see significant improvement in uh, in twenty twenty one, yeah, I, I I could definitely see Orgeron get just this being the last year of Orgeron. Because honestly, LSU they won three national championships with three different coaches. Like they don't even care. They don't care who you are. They're like, we have enough talent down here. Just don't get out of our way. Let the players play. Dave Aranda sneaky may have made a terrible decision. Like if he had just waited a couple more years, he was already the highest paid defensive coach in college football. Like if he had just waited two or three more years, he probably could have just gotten the LSU job. Like, and he went to Baylor, a much more difficult position and they were bad last year. And now they're 
scrambling because their offense sucks and charlie brewer also went in the portal we should mention but um yeah i don't know he might get fired and lose a lot of luster and baylor in like a year or two like he he maybe should not have left lsu yet that that is something i'm starting to think about could he also spin it that you know, once I left, that, that defense just fell apart. You know, well, the defense I, sucked I was, the year they won the national title with him. So I don't. That's know. fair. That, that's fair. They weren't that great. Um. So I don't know. Uh, we we shall see what happens with that. Um. The last thing, the biggest con job in college football, Macarena. <laughs> we'll wrap up here. Um. Pat Fitzgerald gets a ten-year contract extension at Northwestern because his agent, every offseason, putting it out there, the Chicago Bears. The Green Bay Packers, the New York Jets, all the NFL teams, they all want him. They're all interested in Pat Fitzgerald and his anemic offenses that win just enough uh, to get his Northwestern Wildcats the opportunity to get their brains beat in by the Ohio State Buckeyes in the Big Ten title game. They, I, I just, Pat Fitzgerald is not an NFL coach. He's an average college football coach. Like, yes, winning at Northwestern in that crappy division is somewhat impressive. He knows defense, but good God, he was way too loyal to his offensive coordinator for years at Northwestern. He can't develop a quarterback to save his life. Um, I, I just, there's never been a more des- <laughs> undeserving 10 year contract extension. These with Jimbo, like, they're in the conversation of top five. Like, Jimbo can win a national title in that 10 that year span at Texas AM. Pat Fitzgerald can't win a national title at Northwestern. He can't even win a Big Ten title. Why are you extending him 10 years? What NFL team is dying to get that offense on the field on Sundays? Who wants Pat Fitzgerald offenses in the NFL? Why? Who is in the Super Bowl right now? Pat Mahomes and Bruce Arians, Tom Brady, and Mike Evans and Rob. No, what What are you talking about? Who is chomping at the bit for this <laughs> defensive-minded, stale, terrible offense? Like, who wants this? His agent deserves, like... The Humanitarian of the Year Award. I don't... The swindling from Pat Fitzgerald here is just... I, I, I can't handle it, Matt. I, I can't do it. First of all, you put some respect on Pat Fitzgerald's name, all right? I won't. We're talking about a college football Hall of Fame player right here. This okay. guy... I'm talking about him as a coach. He's a real deal. No. But this guy bleeds Northwestern. Like, Northwestern football is is trash like it's it's awful and he's actually made it respectable for the last 15 years like 106 and 81 like would you have guessed that northwestern was 25 games over 500 over the last 15 years like i feel like that's that's a respectable record we just he's fine he doesn't deserve a 10-year contract extension for sure but i mean he's just He's never gonna go anywhere, so he's just that's that's his home. So you know he why he's not gonna go anywhere because he doesn't have any other options. I'm saying he's got three ten win seasons, two two more nine win seasons. Where was the offense in those years? Can we pull up Northwestern's offense? I'm gonna pull up Northwestern's offense this year. The year they went to the Big Ten title game with Peyton freaking Ramsey, like all the Clemson castoffs. You go up and down the list, like these terrible. Terrible offense. 17, uh, 10 and 3. They had the 57th ranked offense. Congratulations, folks. Like 57th. And you want to bring that to the NFL? The 57th offense? Are you kidding me? Wow, dude. 2015, they also went 10 and 3. No joke. They had the 114th ranked <laughs> offense in college football. Do you see what I'm saying? Points per game. And they won 10 games. You got to get up to Pat Fitzgerald. You know why? Because they played for that coach. They they run through a wall for that guy. 
all the cliche sports things you can say about uh about the tryhards. Uh, but I'm looking yeah. right now at where they are. I'm I'm looking to see where they are this year. Um, it's still going. Hold on. The 2012 was the other 10 win season. They were 40 43rd in the country and and points per game. Okay. 31.7. That's probably the highest they've ever averaged, honestly. Matt, this is atrocious, and I hate all of this. I, I hate it so much. I just want to know, like, I'm still looking. By the way. Oh, they're Gerald... 57th this year. They're 57th. They had... What are you looking at? 2020. I'm looking at 92nd. No, I'm looking at PFF, the elite. I'm looking at their PFF's grades for every. Oh, offense. okay. Yeah. I see. Going, going next level on. I am, I am. I got the, I got PFF elite. Shout out to friend of the pod, Austin Gale, for hooking a guy up. Um, yeah, no, they're they are pretty atrocious um, on that front. Because I, I want to see their passing. I want to see where they were passing. They are all right. They're worse than seventy fifth. Let me see. This is great radio, but I, I'm just so annoyed <laughs> by all. Of, I'm so annoyed by this that I have to keep going. Um, I just want to know what Pat Fitzgerald did to you. Like, uh, he just his existence as a ten-year coach. Like I just, I'm, I don't like any of it, Matt Green. I, I just, I, I don't. Fighting Reese Davis's man. That that stuff was just. Uh, you everything. hated that? Yes. <laughs> it's like, have you looked at who it is? Like, and also the real fighting Reese Davis's, the BYU Cougars. With Romney and Zach Wilson and all those dudes running around, going—that's a real team. Go after. I mean, what does that even? What did it even mean? The fighting Reese Davises. Well, I think I it's just know like it. unathletic white guys. <laughs> I think that's what he meant. Fair enough. Which not wrong, not wrong. And anyone who's actually offended by that uh, is not actually offended. So let's. And that let's... team was in the Big Ten championship. Yeah. Um. But anyway, they're because Pat Fitzgerald. They're frauds in his, in his wizardry. They're frauds. They suck. And uh, that's all I'll say about it. You got to give him some credit the way he coaches in defense. I'm not disagreeing sure. with that. But he's just, he's fine. Is he... It's like when you talk about Dan Mullen as like a great coach, it's like. But I could see a path kinda, to Dan Mullen winning the ignore the lack of achievements because, oh, Mississippi State. It's like, well, look what he's doing at Mississippi State. It's like. But he coached Dak what? Prescott. Like, that's what you need to win in the NFL is to be able to create some sort of offensive juggernaut. Like cliff kingsbury getting what he did out of kyler murray like unless sean mcveigh getting enough out of jared goff pat fitzgerald's getting nothing out of any of these guys any fan base is going to like throw themselves off a bridge if they're if pat fitzgerald gets a hold of their court. can you imagine pat fitzgerald with trevor lawrence can you imagine the atrocities that would be committed if you gave pat sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvelous marvin Hagler, and thomas hearns legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Fitzgerald, an actual good quarterback? I mean, the only, yeah, for sure. But the only thing is, like, we, we're, just, we're so obsessed with offensive football. I feel like that's why guys that do coach defense, like you gotta, it almost, they almost deserve extra respect because there are so few teams that, that can hold teams under 20 points a game anymore, you know? So it's like, it's easier, it's more tangible for us to see like, oh, those great route concepts and oh, this there's guys running wide open, great play call. It's just easier for us to see this like as fans, but 
like being able to hold teams under 20 points per game doesn't happen very often. There's only a, maybe three or four teams that do that a year anymore. You know, maybe, maybe five teams that hold teams under 20 points. So you got to at least give him credit for what Northwestern is doing well. I guess. I don't know. I mean, 15.9. I guess there's probably more than that this past year because 15.9 uh, points per game they allowed is fifth in the country. Like that, that is big time, especially at Northwestern. They did only play, you know, nine games, but still, gotta respect it. I respect I gotta res- Northwestern, just the ultimate, uh, the ultimate underdog story. Yeah, there you go. Great, love it. Anyway, for that so guy, lock him up for ten years. Yeah, you gotta do it. Um, for that guy down there in Tequila, Georgia, Matt Green. For myself up here in Knoxville, Tennessee. That is all I've got, Matt. We will talk again soon, my friend. Yes, sir. Danny White was announced as Tennessee's athletics director exactly one week ago today. Uh, I think I've been on the job for five days, something like that. Uh, it's been a, been, a, been a whirlwind. He's already hired his next football coach. It's Josh Heupel from UCF. So in a short period of time, Tennessee needed an AD and a coach. And now it's Central Florida, who needs one of each. We had an exhaustive, exhaustive nationwide search. Uh, I know that sounds crazy because I'm hiring the guy that I've worked with for the last three years. What's up, y'all? I'm Matt Wyatt, helping you get more enjoyment out of watching football and offering some of my perspective as a broadcaster, former player. Welcome back to the channel. White, a guy who many thought would make an unexpected hire, ended up making the most obvious one, bringing his UCF coach with him to Knoxville. And on the surface, this may seem downright convenient, but I think there's more to it. I mentioned here on this channel in a previous video that I thought Tennessee needed to go in search of offense and a quarterback-centric coach. And I think they definitely got that with Hype. We're going to play with tempo here. We're going to be the aggressor. We're going to play with our skilled players out in space. We're going to give them an opportunity to, to push the football down the field. I was looking at some numbers at his last couple of coaching stops, and Heupel has improved the total offense and passing numbers everywhere he's been. Take a look back at his time as offensive coordinator in the SEC East at Missouri. The year before Heupel arrived in 2015, Missouri's offense only put up a total of 3,300 yards and some change. You're talking about only 280 yards per game across a 12-game season. So Barry Odom and staff knew they had this young, talented quarterback named Drew Locke, and they just needed an offensive coach to come in and develop an offense around him. Enter Josh Heupel. In his first season calling plays in Columbia, the offense almost doubled the yards from the year before with over 6,000 yards of offense, 500 yards per game. They also scored 52 touchdowns in 2016, 36 more than a season earlier. In his second year running the Mizzou offense, they improved again in total yards, yards per game, and touchdowns. Then, if you look at his time as head coach at UCF the last three years, you notice something similar. Even though the losses went up in the overall record each of the last three seasons, the offensive yards per game went up from 524 per game in 2018 to 540 in 2019, and up to 568 yards per game this past season. Now, peel that onion down one more layer and look at what Heupel has done with quarterbacks. The best quarterback coaches in the country, guys like Dan Mullen, Lane Kiffin, Mike Leach, and Lincoln Riley, 
They all have things in common, some differences too, but one similarity is that throughout their careers, their quarterbacks improve from one year to the next. You almost never see those guys have a starter go backwards. The last couple of starting quarterbacks Heupel has coached have shown that upward trend. At UCF, Dylan Gabriel went from 59% completions in 2019 to 60% this year. Gabriel's touchdown-to-interception ratio went up from 29-7 in 2019 to 32-4 this year in spite of playing only 10 games. The passing yards per game for Gabriel went up from 281 to 357 per game this year. As Drew Locke's coach at Missouri in 2016 and 17, Heupel helped his numbers improve year over year. Locke's completion percentage, touchdowns, and yards per game all went up under Heupel. The offense for Heupel at Missouri, they used uh, tight ends a good bit. Watch a play here, tight end, off play action, getting in the middle of the field against the zone defense. And they had some big tight end targets, and it was one of those examples of you know, a coach like Heupel coaching to his personnel. You know, his offense hasn't always been cookie cutter. Some of the concepts are, but the personnel has been different. And like you say here, like here's a game against Georgia back in 2016 where they actually have double tights out of the shotgun. And it's just play action. Because of double tights in the formation, you're kind of getting a seven-man box. And that's what you're hoping is linebackers jump on the, the play action fake. And so when the ball goes in here like it's a zone run, linebacker comes flying up, tight end is free release against this zone coverage with two safeties in the middle of the field. He's going to get in that void right in the middle, kind of in this hole of the defense, and it's a quarterback's job to get him the football in that hole. And you can see him fitting it in there. So he split two linebackers. He's in front of and between two safeties, and there's your opportunity for a completion. So, you know, play action football, find the man come back uh, we'll look at some more here this is one getting out of the backfield I saw this earlier as I was kind of you know just going back and watching some of the offense at Missouri under Heupel uh, they ran the ball pretty well at times uh, but they still you know would spread the field here's three by one three to the left single receiver to the right Georgia bringing five four down and a fifth off the edge but it's not picked up in protection you have five linemen, you know, so if this thing gets handed off here to the backside, you have enough to protect, but the back is getting out free. Because of pressure on the edge, he's looking to dump it off. It's sort of meshing, if you wanted to call it that, crossing here underneath, using the running back. Um, so it's almost like an outlet, the way it works with a blitzing linebacker who doesn't get picked up. Turns into a big play. Just hit him running. A lot of crossing routes, and they're definitely... And when you look at his offense, some air raid concepts in there. Here's a similar deal with a tight end in the red zone. Uh, again, running vertical off of a play action. The formation is different. They're really spreading it out. Two receivers out on the numbers. Another outside the numbers, basically standing on the sideline. But little play action right there. And the hope, again, is that you get at least one linebacker involved and in jumping on that. Get their eyes on the possibility of run. Helps the tight end find that throwing lane. And it also did kind of bring that safety up just a little bit. They're riding that play fake. So you see the defense starting to collapse. Meanwhile, tight end's got free release right here. So just play action, pull them up, drill it to the big guy, and touchdown. Here's another one. Hypo coaching at Missouri back in 2016, his first year. 
inside vertical and that slot receiver, he's really way off the hash there when you look at it. Drill him in front of that safety and big play. Now, this has a lot to do with the quarterback. And Drew Locke did this a bunch in his career. That's throw that middle, you know, inside vertical, reading safeties. But again, they're spreading the field out. It gets you really five, maybe six in the box. They're in a cover two look where corners are, you know, up. Safeties are on the hashes back off the screen that you can't quite see. And so they go two by two. The route that they're using right here looks to me like you've got inside vertical to, you know, threaten safeties. Inside vertical, threaten safeties. Read that middle of the field if you want to. Looks like you're getting vertical or read go on the outside. And if you notice, this is his outlet. Watch what the outside receiver does up here uh, into the boundary. He doesn't even move. Ball snapped. He just stands up like, I'm going to stand here and be your, um, your outlet on this third down play. But because it's zone, you get release behind the linebacker in front of that safety. And can the quarterback drill it in there, able to do it? So it's spread concept, you know, three by one. Uh, or two-by-two two personnel, and they did a lot of that. Okay, this is UCF this year in 2020. And you can see they gave Cincinnati a, a ball game. They they had a shot at a top-10-ranked Cincinnati team. Cincinnati, that 3-3-5 defense, and so UCF ran the ball at them some. Here's one of those where they're popping it for a big run uh, out the backside. And what this is is pulling the center and the guard and leading that back around here to the right. Now, we don't get the whole snap, but this is actually the right guard stepping down on the nose. This is right tackle and getting help on the outside, getting a chip there from the tight end. That guard stepping down on the nose, center snaps it and pulls around in the hole. He's followed by left guard, and that's your lead here, right here on this power run uh, against a three-man front. Now, box, you're only going to get at times five players in that box, so they pull them in there, block them up run that thing against it pressure that front he's had some really balanced offenses in the past you know here's one that's uh we don't see the entire route but you can get a little bit of a glimpse at at coverage there are two by two there's one receiver who's off the screen here but i'll see this a lot in josh heupel offenses and that is spreading it all the way to the sideline i mean we're putting the outside receiver way outside the numbers down here, he's kind of outside the numbers. I believe if we look at it, he actually goes outside release and finds that void against what is a zone defense. And I think, I can't see all of it. It looks like maybe this is quarters coverage where this is deep half and you have quarter, quarter deep coverage. I uh, can't quite see all of it on the screen. But again, against zone, it's kind of... You know, spread concepts and a little air raid in there too and running to open grass. If they're going to zone it, we're going to find the grass and throw it in there. And uh, as we said, you know, those guys have gotten better year after year. They threw the ball well. They really did a lot well in this Cincinnati game. Okay, so, you know, see here's a two-score game uh, late fourth quarter, and they're about to cut it to one score in this Cincinnati game. A little combination down here against uh, you know expecting to get some type of man-to-man -man, and this is a really neat concept that they run for this touchdown we'll watch it first and they kind of stalk it and hit that inside receiver and you go you know it was an odd looking route because he paused stem it up you know into the defender and then kind of pause right there but if you look what they're doing is trying to make this look like a pick play 
Okay, this is very intentional with one, you know, the outside receiver coming in, I'm getting in the area of, uh, of my own teammate here who it looks like, okay, I'm gonna rub route off of him or pick play off of him and try to get him open, right? And watch what this guy does. He very intentionally fakes like he's going to the outside to make his defender think, oh, they're running pick play. We either have to switch it or I've got to, you know, um, go around the top and cover him. But it's not a pick. And as soon as he fakes out this way, his defender jumps, and now he's wide open to the inside. So they are actually giving the illusion of a pick to make that defender jump outside. Boom. One little outside step right there from this receiver. Get him out of the lane. Make him think, We're, I'm coming around to rub right off my teammate. He's trying to anticipate it, come over here and cover me. And instead, he just basically runs himself right out of my lane. I turn it right back in here and I'm just wide open on this slant for a touchdown. Really neat play call and design and executed really well. Get a good look at it here. Over here to your left, right over my head if you're watching the video. So watch the outside move. So it's obviously man to man. That's what they're expecting. Pause, boom, make him think. I'm about, I'm stepping this way. I'm about to go around and run the pick. He jumps all over it. And now I'm wide open for the score. Great design. They got him a touchdown. They wind up, uh, I think, going for two here. Yeah, I made it a five-point game. And here's another fake to get an open receiver for the two-point conversion. And here's what I mean by that. You know, let's see, so this is this year, but over the last two, three years, we've seen this a lot on goal line plays and two-point plays. This deal where we're going to throw it to a motioning receiver behind the line of scrimmage therefore it's legal for these guys to be blocking out in front of it because it's a screen we're completing it back here behind the line of scrimmage so we give the illusion that that's what we're doing like we're going to block out front and throw it to him and try to screen him into the end zone but instead we're going to pump fake that get these defenders to jump all over it and then at least one if not two we're going to bypass them run right by them it's just like getting them to jump on a bubble screen on a pump and go so if you look, watch the quarterback, watch his action and the receiver. Boom, pump fake, just a little shoulder fake is all it takes from the quarterback. They've stepped up. They think we're getting blocked. We turn them completely loose because we're not getting blocked. And he's open in the back of the end zone. Look at it one more time since I drew all over it. <laughs> we'll look at it in slow-mo. So keep your eyes right here. It looks like he's gonna block, pump fake, they jump it. Now I'm wide open in the back of the end zone. So back-to-back -back play calls that I really, really like. And that cut it down to a uh, three-point ball game late in the fourth quarter. Good play call there and you know, having a little fun when you can execute that kind of stuff. So what do you think? Let me know in the comments. And hey, did you enjoy this video? Well, if so, I hope you'll consider subscribing to my channel. New videos are posted here almost every day. And another request, likes on YouTube really help more than you may know. So if you wouldn't mind, thank you so much. And I'll see you on the next one.
We're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I am now joined by someone who is very familiar with some of my favorite uniforms in college football, and someone, a team that I watched way too much of this year. He covers Nevada, Chris Murray. Chris, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am good. Um, how is your uh, How is your off season going? <laughs> yeah, not much of an off season. Uh, you know, it's always busy. I got a couple of kids, so keeping them busy. Um, but you know, it, it's been good. It's uh, been nice to have some sports during the pandemic. Uh, I'm a Dodgers fan and a Lakers fan, so it's been mm. a good uh, year for me sports wise. Uh, also, a Buffalo Bills fan somehow. Um, so, you know, them getting to the final four is, uh, not a bad result given how bad that organization has been. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a worthwhile, uh, pandemic for me sports wise for sure. Are you also a Cowboys, Steelers and Yankees fan? <laughs> no, no. So I, I was, I grew up in LA, so that mm-hmm. explains Dodgers Lakers. Uh, also a fan of the NHL's LA Kings. Um, but there was no, uh, NFL team there when I was younger uh, and the Bills were always in the Super Bowl when I was really little so I apparently just started to like them even though they'd never won the Super Bowl so that explains the Buffalo situation but uh, being born in LA I, I support all the uh, the LA teams for sure all right I'll allow it I'll allow it um, okay <laughs> <laughs> so you know what's funny to me I was texting with my buddy um, who comes to the podcast and he'll be on this uh, episode but um, it was still just a weird thing that the pandemic, one of the things I'll remember more than anything else is the SEC on CBS featuring Nevada and uh, San Diego <laughs> State this fall. That is something that will always stand out to me. How surreal was the CBS game for you and the staff and this team? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly different to be able to get that spotlight. Uh, they didn't draw nearly the numbers. I think it was right around 800,000 uh, viewers uh, as opposed to five or six million. Um, but, well, you know, I, I, I did what I could. Stadium. I did what I could, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mackey Stadium is uh, its an older stadium. It's more than 50 years old. So, uh, you know, it's not completely enclosed. Usually when you get those really cool shots on CBS, so, you know, kind of down on the ground by the pylon, it's kind of shooting up at the whole stadium, and it just has this great atmosphere. And it's like, you know, Mackey Stadium almost looked like a high school stadium to some degree uh, compared to what you usually see in that spot with those cool different uh, visual shots that they have, which uh, Nevada usually doesn't get. Um, so, you know, it, it was a game that lived up to the hype, though. I mean, it literally came down to the last couple of plays. Um, you know, it was two teams that are, you know, both very good uh, among mid-major group of five schools. Um, you know, it was really cool to see Nevada's really high-powered offense go against San Diego State's elite defense. So, um, you know, it was a great uh, opportunity for Nevada to get into that time slot. Uh, you know, the fans and uh, loved it, obviously. The players and the coaches were pumped to be able to do it. And from Nevada's perspective, to come away with a 26-21 victory, uh, you know, they were really happy with the end result there. But, um, yeah, you don't get that kind of spotlight very often for a Nevada football game. Either way, it was cool to watch, and I, it was a really fun game. I, uh, I very much enjoyed that game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that Norvell's name is not coming up more, right, on these West Coast mm-hmm. jobs. I'm surprised he didn't come up more with the Arizona job that opened up. Uh, we'll have to see if, how much longer UCLA is, op- is uh, occupied by Chip Kelly with their new 80 coming in um, and some limited success there, but... What do you make of Norvell, and is he happy? Is he happy at Nevada? Do you see him eyeing Power Five jobs? What do you What do you make of his current feelings towards the team and the university? Yeah, I mean, I think he's very thankful for the opportunity. This is a guy who had been interviewing for head coaching jobs for fifteen to twenty years. 
before Nevada gave him that opportunity to become a head coach for the first time. So I think I'll forever be indebted to Doug Newt, the athletic director, and to Northern Nevada and Reno for that chance. Um, but yeah, I think he is looking to get up to the next level. I mean, he's still only paid $650,000 a year as Nevada's head coach, and this is his second contract. He got an extension before this year. Um, so that's the lowest paid coach in the Mountain West. Mountain West average is close to about $1.1 million. So he's almost half of what the Mountain West average is. So, uh, you know, four years left on his deal. He has a pretty strong buyout. It was about $2.5 million this cycle, which is probably one of the reasons maybe he wasn't as involved with some of the jobs that you mentioned. Um, you know, my understanding is he did do a, a, an interview with Arizona kind of early on in the process, but didn't get to that finalist group. And mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons maybe he didn't is you look at the runner-up for that job, Brent Brennan from San Jose State. Uh, you know, Nevada lost to San Jose right. State in the regular season finale to get into the Mountain West Championship game, which San Jose State then won over Boise. I think Nevada probably would have been beat Boise as well because the Broncos never really had things rolling this season. You know, if, if that game changes and Nevada's up by 13 points at halftime and Nevada ends up winning the Mountain West, then maybe he's the runner-up or, you know, a little bit more in the discussions. I know, you know, he had an opportunity to interview at Missouri uh, two off-seasons ago, so I wouldn't say he's completely not in those interview processes, but it's been a slow build, uh, you know, at Nevada. It hasn't been, like, crazy slow. This is only his fourth year, but you really got to get at least to a Mountain West championship game and probably win a championship before you legitimately have a chance at some of those Power 5 schools. I do think that Jane Ravel's age probably works against him just a little. I was going to say he's sneaky old. Um, yeah, yeah, sneaky old. I mean, because he's very, very fit. I mean, he doesn't look very old when you just look at no. him. I mean, he keeps himself in, in really good shape. The genes are really good. His mom was a, a model. Uh, and, you know, so that, that helps. <laughs> there you uh, go. But, yeah, you, you don't look at him. He's got a very large head. Guys, yeah, he's not, you don't, you know, you know he's going to be 58 at the start of next season. So you, you're not looking at him and saying, well, like, he's a 60-year-old. But, you know, you look on paper and, you know, he is up there. And I think that age that he had to wait until 54 to get his first job, plays against him i don't think that takes him out of the running for any you know jobs i I think uh you mentioned ucla he was an assistant there you know he was an assistant at oklahoma he was an assistant at texas he played in iowa so i think he's got some ties to the pac 12 the big 12 and the big 10 i think those are the three most um likely destinations i know when like sec jobs come up like the missouri when i mentioned or even vanderbilt you know his name gets thrown out there that doesn't seem as a reasonable effect Um, to the Big 12, the Big 10, and the Pac-10. That's so what, what needs to happen? I think he needs to take that next step. He needs to get Nevada into the top 25. He needs to have them at least in a Mountain West championship game. And with the team that he has coming back, all of those things are reasonable to happen in 2021. The buyout goes a little bit lower. Now you're looking, if you want to hire Jay Norvell, you're only paying about $1.8 million next season. Still a pretty decent amount of money, but um, you know he, he's on the right trajectory. And I think if that offer ever does come, as much as he does like Reno and appreciate the fact that Nevada gave him his first job, uh, I think he will be moving on to the next venture just because the, the money is what it is. And this is a guy who probably thought that he should have been a Power 5 coach a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't see him turning down that opportunity if it does come. Interesting. Um, jobs like Nevada are fascinating to me. And he, like, when people just look at, like, college football fans, they just look at the record, and they're like, oh, 7-2, and 8-5, and 7-6, like, who cares? But at Nevada, it's harder. Nevada, it's harder to win. It's harder to recruit. It's harder to um, to succeed long term at Nevada. Why it for the person that is not as inundated with the Nevada situation and just winning there? Why mm-hmm. is this job particularly more difficult than other jobs like Boise? 
Uh, I think you look at the facilities and that's the number one thing. So I'm sitting here and we've gotten probably two feet of snow on the valley floor in the last 48 to 72 hours. Uh, Nevada, when it entered the Mountain West, was the only cold weather school in the conference. This is back in 2012 when it comes into the Mountain West that doesn't have an indoor practice facility. We are almost a decade later. Nevada still doesn't have an indoor practice facility. You go to Boise, they have a great indoor practice facility. Colorado State has one. Utah State has one. New Mexico has one. You just go on and on down the list. All of these schools have these bells and whistles uh, that Nevada doesn't have. Nevada does not pour a lot of money into its uh, you know budgets for football. Uh, and you have to get into kind of the state taxes. This is not an income tax state. We're not taxed on our income. Um, so the higher education uh, universities are not funded as much. So the athletic departments are not funded as much. And that's why General Bell ends up making $650,000 when almost everybody else in the Mountain West is at a million dollars. So assistant salary pool is not as high. It's harder to retain coaches. And then you look at the history of winning. I mean, Chris Alt is the name that's kind of synonymous with Nevada football. He was Nevada's football coach for 28 years, over three different tenures, won 234 games, is in the College Football Hall of Fame, is an absolute legend in this area. But whenever he stepped aside, whoever replaced him didn't have a lot of success, actually wrote a column pretty recently, you know, Jane Orville is 25 and 22 at Nevada. Nobody would think that's, you know, outstanding, but you could already make the argument that he's the second best coach in Nevada football history, which goes back to the 1800s. So, um, you know, coach Alt had a ton of success, but nobody else has really had a ton of success. I think a lot of it comes down to the budget and the facilities uh, and the fact that if you do, you know, hit a home run with a defensive coordinator or an offensive coordinator, uh, you know, you, those guys are not getting paid in Nevada. They're making a little bit over $200,000. So it's hard to retain those guys and have that cohesion. There's not necessarily like a great recruiting base in town. It's not bad because we're like eight hours from Los Angeles. And that's where coach Norvell gets a lot of his players are pretty close to the Bay area, Sacramento, um, you know, eight hours away from Las Vegas. So there are some recruiting hubs around Nevada, but certainly just like within the state or within northern Nevada specifically, you're not going to build your team that way. So you definitely have to go out of state to be able to build the roster. It's going to be competitive. And Nevada actually has, you know, pretty high academic standards. I'm not talking about like Notre Dame, but it, it is the highest in the Mountain West outside Air Force. And that has cost them some recruits over the last decade as well. Where is their hub? Where is Norvell really centered in on his recruiting efforts? Yeah, I mean, it is Southern California. I mean, when mm -hmm. he was interviewing for the job, he brought a list of all of Nevada's players who made it to the NFL uh, under Coach Alt, and they were almost all from Southern California. And he said, hmm. you know, that's the area I've recruited. I've been UCLA's head coach. I know a ton of guys down there. Uh, his wide receiver coach, Eric Scott, has done a tremendous job down there. He played at Northwestern at UCLA. He was an assistant at UCLA. Um, you know, he's really focused uh, a lot of his resources on the Los Angeles area, and you can see it in the players who are on the roster. Um, you know, a lot of the great players that he's been able to bring to Nevada are from that area. Um, you know, he did hire Angus McClure, who came from UCLA and is kind of known as Uncle Angus in Northern California for recruiting purposes. Uh, and Angus was on Nevada staff for the last two years before going to Cal this offseason, another example of not being able to match money uh, when push comes to shove. Um, but it, it is California. I mean, they widen their base a little bit. They've gotten some guys out of Washington, some guys out of Texas with Matt Mummy's ties. Uh, they've gone to Oregon a little bit, Arizona with Brian Ward, the defensive coordinator who's from Arizona. But, I mean, 75% of your recruits uh, under Jane Norvell to date have come from California, and the majority of those guys have come from Southern California. And that's kind of been the footprint when Nevada's been successful in the past is to really hit – 
from Sacramento all the way down to San Diego and just focus your, 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 your eyes there. I mean, Colin Kaepernick is a perfect example. He's Nevada's most famous alum, uh, you know, from Turlock, California, pretty close to Fresno and Fresno didn't give him a scholarship offer, but Nevada at the time they recruited the San Joaquin Valley very, very uh, strongly uh, and took a bunch of players who ended up going to the NFL out of that area. So it, it's up and down California, but for Jane Orville, I think he's focused a little bit more on Southern California than Northern California. Interesting. Uh, per pro, pro football focus, um, Nevada had the 43rd ranked offense of 130 teams this year. What went right for Norvell's offense? Yeah, and that's coming off the year before they averaged 20 points per game, their lowest total since the year 2000. So, um, you know, that was a pretty drastic turnaround. I mean, what went well is that, you know, Carson Strong, to me, their quarterback, is a future NFL player. Uh, Romeo Dubs, uh, their top wide receiver, is a future NFL player. And Cole Turner, their tight end, is a six foot six guy who's a future NFL player. So when you have three future NFL players at very, very critical positions who all were going into their third year at Nevada, uh, you know, Carson's only a sophomore uh, and Cole's only a sophomore, but uh, Romeo was a senior or, or is a, was a junior because he played as a true freshman. I, I, they were just, you know, they had the couple years of taking the lumps and they were ready to kind of show their best football. Um, you know, their offensive line was much, much better. It's still not elite, but it was like one of the 10 worst in college football in 2019, and it was a lot closer to average this last year. So that certainly helps. They have two good running backs. Uh, Toa Tawa was an all-conference player. His brother Vitao was Nevada's running backs coach and is the all-time leading rusher in Nevada history uh, in his FBS era. He was kind of Colin Kaepernick's sidekick. Um, so, you know, they have some really good playmakers. They had cohesion. Uh, you know, a lot of coaches uh, changed in the Mountain West last year. Six head coaches changed, uh, and they didn't have a regular offseason to put together their scheme. So that was one big plus for Nevada is they had their head coach back who calls their offensive plays. They had their offensive coordinator back for a fourth straight season. Um, local COVID-19 restrictions allowed the Wolfpack basically to practice from June all the way until the start of the season in, uh, you know, October, November. So, um, you know, they had a lot more benefit of being able to practice together. And as I mentioned, Carson, Romeo, and Cole, I mean, those guys are roommates, so they would go out and throw, you know, all the time. They've done that the last three years. They've been roommates the last three years, and that that really helps. So it was just the experience with the fact that Coach Norvell has recruited some pretty good skill position players at Nevada, and then that offensive line took a nice step forward and gave those stars kind of a chance to succeed this year. Interesting. Um Nevada, they went 7-2, and two, and their two losses, you mentioned them, Hawaii and San Jose State. What happened in those two losses? Yeah, I mean, in the game against Hawaii, the offense only got the ball six times. Legitimately, they have six <laughs> offensive That's a problem. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they scored 21 points. You score a touchdown on half your possessions, and you feel pretty good about yourself. Uh, but what Hawaii basically says, you know, we're going to let you run the ball as much as you want and you're not going to throw. Um, and, you know, Nevada ran the ball really well, like seven yards per carry, um, but they would just have this, you know, poorly timed penalty that would put them back 10, 15 yards, and, you know, they ended up having to punt three times, and the defense wasn't very, you know, strong. They had some trouble, uh, especially the third tight end, uh, the third cornerback position, which has kind of been an issue the entire season. Um, you know, that they, they just kind of ran out of time. I think they were the better team, but – you know, the possessions were just melted down and they didn't play well enough in those, uh, you know, in those offensive series. Um, against San Jose State, I mean, they just played their worst half in the second half. I mean, they were up 13 at halftime, you know, 
30 minutes away from being able to play for a Mountain West championship game and uh, a very controversial fumble, which kind of turned the, the game around. Uh, Toa Tawa fumbled on, you know, the one yard line going into the end zone. The reviews pretty much showed that both of his knees were down, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, that it was, it was not called that way after the review. Uh, San Jose State went on a 99-yard touchdown run. Uh, Toa Tawa fumbled again later in the second half. Uh, Nevada allowed a kick return for a touchdown in the second half of the game. Uh, so they just played a really, really bad second half. They kind of crumbled. They missed a 25-yard field goal. So a lot of things went wrong. And, you know, they didn't have margin for error because they lost that Hawaii game. And then, you know, against San Jose State, the bad 30 minutes kind of sunk them. And those are the only two teams Nevada played all season that had above 500 records. So, the Wolfpack had a pretty fortunate schedule. Uh, you know, they had some really close games. They beat Wyoming in, in overtime. San Diego State, they beat by five points. The Aztecs missed a wide-open touchdown pass on the second-to-last offensive play of the game. They would have won it for the Aztecs. Um, you know, New Mexico, which is not a very good team, Nevada only beat by a touchdown, and the Lobos had the ball inside Nevada's 25-yard line with 70 seconds left and couldn't score. Uh, and then you look at the Fresno State game, Nevada was outgained by almost 200 yards. They gave up almost 600 yards of offense, and uh, Fresno State didn't have its kicker or punter because they had COVID. So uh, their, their special teams was a disaster. They had a couple of punts blocked. They you know missed extra points all over the place. So, I, you know, Nevada at 7-2 and two was, was good, but they didn't beat the better teams on their schedule, and they, you know, pulled out a lot of close games. So while they should be much better next year, you know, there were some things that went in their direction and a positive favor this year. So uh, they, they certainly need to improve to, to be able to get to a Mountain West championship game next year. Are you worried about how the defense played the last four weeks of the season? Because there was a stark contrast in rating from the first um, five games of the season versus the last four. Did you notice anything specific that really fell apart for them defensively? They just started to play teams that could throw the ball. Uh, you know, the Mountain West didn't have a good season in terms of quarterbacks, and the pretty clear and obvious weakness of Nevada's defense was its secondary. As I mentioned, like their third cornerback position was kind of difficult all year. I mean, even their second, their nickel cornerback position was kind of up and down. Um, so, you know, they opened the season with Wyoming. Their quarterback uh, got hurt on the second play of the game and didn't play for the rest of the game. And that's a running-oriented team to start with. Uh, then they play with U against UNLV, and UNLV used like five quarterbacks this year, um, and they they were kind of a disaster trying to throw the ball. Utah State's quarterback Jason Shelley, a Utah transfer, um, had a horrible year, and then was dismissed from the team the game after playing Nevada. Um, and you just New Mexico, uh, New Mexico is a run first team, and their starting quarterback had gotten hurt the game before, so they were playing a backup quarterback who had some trouble throwing the ball. And then they get to like, oh, th these legitimate teams that can throw the ball, Hawaii with Chevin Cordero, um, Fresno State with Jake Hayner, San Jose State with Nick Sarkle. Uh, you know, these guys who are competent throwers, but they weren't even great. And that, you know, was able to expose some of Nevada's defensive shortcomings. Um, you know, I think Nevada's offense also struggled a little bit in the second half up into that bowl game because – up until then, it was like Romeo Dubs running 50 yards down the field and we'll throw you a touchdown and we'll do that twice a game. And that worked. Like he was averaging like 175 yards per game over the first five games, nine touchdowns in that period. And then you look over the last four or five games, didn't score at all. You know, it was held in check quite a bit more because teams were, you know, able to prepare for him a little bit more. And Nevada didn't necessarily have the second wide receiver that you want to kind of balance things out because their top receiver from last year, Elijah Cooks, who's another potential NFL player, six foot five wide receiver, uh, separated his shoulder and had to have surgery in the season opener. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, teams kind of caught up to Nevada in the second half, but I still think it's a it's a really talented team moving forward for sure. And, you know, 7-2, you take it a school like Nevada, even though they probably feel like they left, you know, some on the table because that second half against San Jose State. Interesting. 2021, what are your expectations for the Wolfpack this fall, especially after uh, looking thinking about the schedule and where they're at? Yeah, I mean, it could be a top 25 team. I think it's not unless championship robust. I mean, I mentioned all of those offensive skill position players who are underclassmen who are coming back. Carson Strong, Cole Turner, Romeo Dubs, Elijah Cooks will be back after his surgery. Um, you know, Nevada has a lot of guys coming back who are underclassmen. And then they basically added every single senior who had eligibility left and started last year coming back too. I mean, they have 11 seniors who have opted to return for a second senior season, including a couple of all-conference players, Lawson Hall, linebacker, and Sam Hammond, a defensive lineman. Um, you know, they were both all-conference players. They're coming back. Burdell Robbins, their best cornerback, is coming back. Um, so it's it's going to be a really strong team. You know, they have cohesion. They haven't lost a single coach this offseason. Uh, no coordinators, no position coaches. So that's really good for them. And then the schedule is more difficult than last year. But, you know, it's reasonable. Uh, you know, they play at Cal to open the season. That's a good Pac-12 team, but it's not an overwhelming team that you can't beat. They play at Kansas State in non-conference. That's another example of a good Big 12 team, but it's not like a top-10 team that you have no chance of beating. Um, you know, they have to play Boise State, which wasn't on the schedule last year. They have to play Air Force, which wasn't on the schedule last year. Um, you know, they have to go to San Diego State. They have to go to Fresno State when those games were at home. So, you know, there are some pretty good road games on there that if Nevada opens the season, it's going to have a little bit of buzz in the preseason, but opens the season by beating Cal, and then beats Kansas State a couple weeks after that. I mean, they'll be in the top 25 at that point. And I think Nevada looks at its roster and says, you know, there's nobody in the Mountain West that has a better roster than us. We just have to go out there and improve that we have improved and not just thought that we're going to get better naturally because we're all a year older. So, um, you know, it, it's lining up to be a potential breakthrough season. I mean, Jay Norvell in his second year, was, Nevada's kind of muddling along went on our show and said that, you know, he expects Nevada to play in a New Year's Six Bowl, and you kind of think oh, it's ridiculous to whoa. say. Yeah, I mean... Don't back back yourself into a corner, Jay. Yeah. But, I mean, if they go undefeated next year, I mean, you have a win over Cal, you have a win over Kansas State, you beat Boise State, you win a Mountain West Championship. Like, the schedule is set up kind of like 2010 when Nevada finished 11th in the nation and went 13-1, and that, you know, there are some tests on there, but you're not playing you know, at Notre Dame, which Nevada's done twice in the last 10 years. You're not playing at Texas A&M, which Nevada did in 2015. You're playing these reasonable Power 5 opponents that if you beat on the road, it's going to look like a really good win. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to how strong the Mountain West is. But if you're able to go out and beat Boise State, which looks like a solid team, San Diego State, which is always solid, Fresno State should be better, San, San Jose State brings back a lot. Um, and they were in the top 25 last year. I think the strength of schedule will be enough that you know, they can compete with the team that goes undefeated in the American conference. Um, it's just, that's asking a lot. I mean, you know, I said seven and two is good this year. I don't expect Nevada to go 13 and zero and win a conference championship. Um, I think that's putting too much on them, but I think if they fall short of playing in a mountain West championship game, it will be really, really bad. And if they don't win the mountain West championship, I think they're going to feel disappointed because of the caliber of skill that they have on their team. Like, I think Carson Strong is a first or second day NFL quarterback pick. And you don't get those kinds of guys very often at a school like Nevada. I mean, they had it with Colin Kaepernick, but before then it had been since 1948. 
since Nevada had a quarterback who played, uh, started an NFL game. So, like, you have to take advantage of this window when you have a very special quarterback on your roster with really good skill position players around him. Interesting, interesting. Well, Garcia, this has been great. I appreciate uh, you making the time today. What can uh, we check out from you this week? Uh, yeah, I mean, just at by Chris Murray is my Twitter account. I write about Nevada basketball, Nevada football, Nevada everything. So, um, yeah, it's uh, we we got a lot of good stuff on our website, and we have a daily uh, TV show that that runs here in Reno, and we get a lot of good guests. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you are interested at all in the Mountain West, we cover Mountain West stuff, not just uh, Nevada stuff. But um, yeah, we've we've been busy, and the Nevada basketball team's doing okay this year. Nothing great, but uh, Steve Alford, the former Indiana star and, and UCLA head coach, uh, is bringing in some good recruits, a lot of transfers. So that team should be pretty good uh, next year as well, along with Nevada football. All right. Go do that. Keep up the great work, sir. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to talk again soon. Sounds good. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.